cases, this was wishful thinking. Here's a conversation I had with a startup founder at the height of the blockchain madness. Should I use the blockchain to create our online rental marketplace? Why? Will it give you a competitive advantage over Airbnb or HomeAway? I don't know. Does it provide any additional value to the end customer? Not really. Does it make implementation easier or provide additional functionality? Well, it actually makes it harder. <laughs> you can see where this is headed. The entrepreneur is not thinking it through. He just wants to raise money from gullible investors, regardless of the suitability of the technology to the task at hand. To me, this is not only bad business, but unprincipled. Using new technology when there's no fit is not a strategy for success. The reason centralized databases power most of the internet right now is because they get the job done. Unless the decentralized blockchain can do a significantly better job at a particular task or enable an entirely new type of service, it doesn't make any sense to adopt it. It's like trying to pound a nail into the wall with an electric drill. Even if investors are infatuated with the idea, what's the point? Unfortunately, this type of short-term thinking is rampant everywhere in the world. It's driven by greed and ignorance. Startups desperately want funding, investors want to get rich quick, and the media overhypes whatever is hot to attract eyeballs. The result is that startups choose a technology not because it's the best possible solution, but because it's an easy way to get attention and raise capital. Whenever you're doing a startup, please don't shoehorn. It's unethical and unproductive, and you won't be creating anything of value for anyone, including yourself. 64. Design Thinking Unicorn hunters know that design innovation is where much of the value lies. Design is often more important than technological innovation at the early stages. Why is this? It's because developing new core technologies tends to take a lot of time and money. It's not like investing in a newfangled coat hanger. Anyone can do that. It's low-tech. But in the high-tech world, developing a core technology can take years and tens of millions of dollars. Most startups don't have the time or the money. They are bootstrapping it and must get to market as quickly as possible. The result is that design innovation tends to be at the heart of most successful startups around the world. Dropbox became a unicorn by designing a superior way to share files. Facebook designed a new way to communicate with friends. WeWork remade the workspace. Pinterest reimagined a social network based on a visual metaphor. Spotify reinvented how a generation consumes music. Hulu recreated the television experience online. And the list goes on. Smart design allowed these unicorns, and many more, to break into the market and redefine their product categories. What are the most important elements in good design? The first is simply how the product looks. Everyone likes to say, don't judge a book by its cover. But they say this precisely because that's what everyone does. We all judge books by their covers, so the book cover had better appear darn enticing or it probably won't make it off the shelves. If you want to sell your product to consumers, businesses, and investors, looks matter. This includes everything from your product design and packaging to your website, app, video content, and even business cards. They are all part of your book cover. If you're developing a physical product, the materials, colors, ergonomics, form, functions, and packaging are all part of the design. For software, it's the UI, user interface, and UX, user experience. How do users navigate your app? Is the flow intuitive and streamlined? Is there an emotional component? The best products create a remarkable connection with the customer. They are a joy to use, some bordering on addictive. They provide visual, auditory, and sensory feedback. Pressing a button can almost feel magical, like the product is alive and responding to your touch as much as a living organism would. This is what's called a great user experience. For physical products, there are a number of factors, including how it feels to the touch. Does form follow function? Do the features seem to be a natural extension of the product itself? Does the product give the customer that remarkable feeling that only truly special products have? 
A product's ability to tap into the full range of emotions, from delighting the customer upon first touch to becoming an indispensable companion over time, is what separates hit products from mere wannabes. I always look for products that enchant me. Does the product somehow appear as if it were designed specifically for me? Do I feel that desire to possess it? Does it radiate authenticity? Would I be proud to show it off to friends? People buy products, including cars, computers, phones, and homes, as much for what the product says about them as for what the product does. It's often more about self-actualization than anything else. Think of how attached people become to their phones. It's not just an indispensable communications device. It speaks to their identities. It's something they take with them everywhere and use in all types of social situations. True design thinking transcends how beautiful something appears and taps into an innate understanding of the psychological and emotional needs of the people who use it. Steve Jobs understood design at its deepest levels. Most people make the mistake of thinking design is what it looks like, said Jobs. People think it's this veneer, that the designers are handed this box and told, make it look good. That's not what we think design is. It's not just what it looks like and feels like. Design is how it works. Design thinking is an entire process that involves defining the problem, researching, forming ideas, prototyping, and testing. Great design teams often include more than just engineers and product designers. They also tap into experts on psychology, ethnography, cultural anthropology, ergonomics, cognition, and perception. Tom Kelly, the general manager at IDEO, one of Silicon Valley's top design firms, sums it up well when he says, Cool technology alone is not enough. If it were, we'd all be riding segways and playing with robotic dogs. Smart investors know this, and that's why design is a central consideration when hunting for unicorns. They know that design will ultimately play a pivotal role in almost every startup success or failure. As a startup founder, hiring a top-notch designer is one of the best investments you can make. If your company doesn't have strong design DNA, it's time to go out and get some. 65. Building Superior Products One person who believes the product matters more than anything else is James Dyson. After studying furniture design, then architecture and structural engineering, his first job was designing things for an engineering company. The owner, Jeremy Fry, was an inventor who liked to hire young people and see what they could do. Dyson was told to design a new type of flat-bottom boat, even though he had absolutely no experience whatsoever with watercraft. As it happens, Fry also knew absolutely nothing about boats. This was just an idea he'd come up with. Fry, however, had a unique approach. He believed that you shouldn't think too much. You should just run with your ideas. He hated experts because they knew too much and wouldn't take chances. He wanted someone who was open to anything, no matter how outrageous. That's why he chose to hire young designers with little or no experience, but a lot of talent. Dyson accepted the job, even though he thought it was a little bit crazy. Having no clue, he dove into learning everything he could about watercraft. When it was time to create a prototype, he encountered his first of many problems. He didn't know how to weld, and this was a necessary skill. He assumed Fry would hire a professional welder, but Fry refused. Just go and try, Fry retorted. With no other choice, Dyson set about learning how to weld, as well as work with fiberglass and other materials. When he finally managed to build a boat that would float, Fry told him to take it to market. Again, Dyson was caught off guard. Wasn't Fry going to hire a professional sales and marketing team? Dyson was a designer, not a business person. He knew nothing about selling. Don't be ridiculous, says Fry. You designed every square millimeter of it, every nut and bolt. You know everything about it, so go out and sell it. So, Dyson put on a salesman's hat and went out to find customers. Within the first year, he'd sold a 100 boats at a healthy profit margin. He couldn't believe how successful it was. The British military, construction companies, and oil companies all became buyers. Dyson went on to build other projects for Fry. He learned a tremendous amount on the job, and after seven years, he got the itch to start his own company. 
Fry offered to fund it, but Dyson wanted to see if he could do it entirely on his own. After a lot of contemplation, he decided to invent a new type of wheelbarrow. Instead of a wheel, it had a giant ball. He came up with the idea as he was fixing his house and noticed the deficiencies of wheelbarrows. The narrow wheels and legs sank into soft ground, especially when it was muddy. This made them hard to use. Wanting to solve this problem, he replaced the narrow wheels with a giant ball that was more maneuverable and wouldn't get stuck in soggy soil. Dyson called it the ball barrow. The ball barrow worked incredibly well, but the difficult thing was selling it. Hardware stores didn't want it because they thought it looked strange. So Dyson resorted to placing little advertisements in the newspaper right next to incontinence pants and baldness cures. Surprisingly, he wound up selling a decent number of ball barrows, but he never made much money. It turned out that there was no money in wheelbarrows. It was an important lesson to learn. No matter how good the product, the market also matters. Not many people buy wheelbarrows, and when they do, they don't want to spend much. So, profit margins are slim. Dyson admits that he should have charged more for his innovative product instead of competing on price, but at the time, he didn't know better. Dyson made another mistake. In order to grow his business, he took on outside investors. These investors weren't as open-minded as Fry. When Dyson proposed the company launch a second product, his investors became annoyed. It didn't help that the second product was a new type of vacuum cleaner. Dyson became fascinated with the idea of having a vacuum that required no bags and created a massive amount of suction. His idea was inspired by industrial-sized cyclones that are used in factories to vacuum away particulate matter. Dyson figured that if he could miniaturize this technology, it would make the most powerful vacuum in the world, and that vacuum would have the added benefit of never needing any bags. He thought his concept was solid, but his investors thought it was crazy. They insisted that if this was such an incredible idea, why didn't Hoover or Electrolux do it? These were giant companies that knew the industry inside and out. They'd been around for 80 years and had the resources to develop a consumer cyclone vacuum, if it were even possible. Since they hadn't done it, it clearly wasn't worth pursuing. When Dyson insisted on moving forward with his idea, the investors became so upset they kicked him out of his own company. Dyson was left with no money and no prospects, but that didn't deter him. In fact, it motivated him to try harder. He realized that his invention was valuable because vacuums had a problem. The bags are not efficient. Long before the vacuum bag actually fills up, the tiny pores that allow airflow get clogged, making the vacuum less effective the more the bag is used. That's why people have to change the bag so often. With the cyclone, this wouldn't be a problem. Suction would never decrease because there are no tiny holes. The air flows right through while the particulate matter sticks to the sides. After completing more than 5,000 prototypes, he finally managed to produce a fully functional cyclone vacuum cleaner. With the product in hand, he went around to the big vacuum and appliance companies and tried to license it. To his dismay, all of them rejected him. They weren't interested. They liked selling vacuum bags. It was lucrative having a recurring revenue stream. With each passing day, Dyson's financial situation worsened. He now had a pile of debt, no income, and no customers. But instead of giving up, Dyson became more determined than ever to prove them wrong. His friends and family thought he was nuts to continue with this fruitless project, but Dyson knew the vacuum companies hadn't given him a good reason this wouldn't work. If they'd have given him one good reason, he would have tried something else. Without a reason to stop, he simply kept going, even though things looked bleaker by the month. At the 11th hour, he managed to secure a licensing deal from a small Japanese company. This deal, along with winning a patent infringement lawsuit in America, saved Dyson from bankruptcy. Putting up his home as collateral, Dyson took out a loan and began manufacturing vacuums. Then he went around trying to find distributors and retailers in the UK. When the catalog manager asked why he should remove a Hoover or another top brand to make room for Dyson's strange, unproven invention, Dyson said, Because your catalog is boring. That proved to be enough of a reason. Within two years, Dyson had the top-selling vacuum cleaner in the United Kingdom. Flush with victory, Dyson set his sights on the much more lucrative U.S. market. 
In his now-famous TV commercials, he appeared in the ads himself and explained why he'd invented this vacuum and how it was far superior to anything else on the market. Product sales exploded, transforming Dyson into one of the top vacuum brands in the world. After 10 years, Dyson stepped down as CEO to focus 100% of his energy on inventing new products, including an elegant bladeless fan, the first washing machine to feature two counter-rotating drums, an innovative hand dryer, and other breakthrough appliances. Dyson attributes his success to the mentality of a long-distance runner. He firmly believes that when you start to get tired, you should run faster because everyone else is tired too. If you want to win, you cannot give up when it hurts. That's when everyone else stops, and only by pushing further can you break through. Back when Dyson was developing his first vacuum, he was 40 years old and deeply in debt with no signs of success on the horizon. He's now worth around $6 billion, owns 100% of his company, and he did it all by taking a long-term approach focused around great design, with the faith that the best products always win out in the long run. Unicorn hunters realize this too, and that's why they pay special attention to well-designed products and creative teams. In the end, the products have to be exceptional, or you're just running another copycat business. 66. Why Media Attention Matters Why is media attention so important? The first reason is because most startups are broke. At the beginning, they have nothing. No name recognition, no customers, and almost no money. Building a nationally recognized brand in the traditional way through advertising is prohibitively expensive and usually takes years. But if a startup can manage to catch the media's attention, all this can happen in a matter of months and costs practically nothing. The media is excellent at spotting trends. After all, that's the job of most journalists. They are paid to predict what's coming next and make a headline out of it. Their senses are highly tuned to what stories will go viral, and when they see something special, they jump on it. If the story sticks, more journalists will pile on, propelling the story to new heights and further developing the narrative. With each subsequent retelling, the story becomes richer and more ingrained in the public's imagination, thus becoming more valuable. Piggybacking on top of this growing narrative is the startup's brand. This is why smart investors pay special attention to media. It's a key barometer of a startup's potential to break through the clutter. Startups are stories. Each company tells its story, but only certain stories resonate with the public and take off. If a story is trending, it's a good sign the company is on to something bigger, something that may turn out to be a game-changer. Riding a wave of press can do for a startup what almost no amount of funding can do. It can make the startup's product a part of popular culture and its brand part of the everyday vernacular. As much as we like to think of ourselves as individuals, human beings act as a herd. We tend to do what everyone else around us does. We tend to use the same apps, eat similar foods, buy similar clothing, and use similar expressions. A study at the University of Leeds confirms this, showing that just 5% of any group tends to influence where the other 95% go. This is how we've evolved to form cooperative societies. It's why millions of people spread across thousands of miles of land can feel they're part of a single nation and culture. The combination of traditional media, new media, and social media sits at the center of this giant web of communication. Traditional and new media act as our filters. Editors, journalists, and bloggers capture and craft the stories, while social media acts as the viral engine, causing them to spread faster and farther. The combination of influential curators, compelling headlines, and user reactions validate ideas and raise them above the noise. In this way, the media acts as a virtual traffic cop, continually directing the flow of the public's interests and opinions. Public relations agencies know this. Celebrities live and die by it and politicians exploit it. As a startup founder, you should spend the time to understand how media works in the age of social networks and develop a strategy to take advantage of it. If you don't possess this knowledge, you need to bring someone on board who can help you craft your approach. Launching a product today is as much about media adoption as it is about marketing, pricing, and distribution.
Despite all the trouble Uber and Facebook had with the press, in most cases, the old saying still holds true. No press is bad press. Even when the media is dissing Airbnb, Facebook, Snapchat, or YouTube for doing something stupid or corrupting our children, it's still press, and it's embedding those brands deeper into our psyche. Most startups, especially in the early stages of their development, garner uncritical, positive exposure. The media tends to embrace entrepreneurs, and this is why investors who see a startup gain traction in the press often leap on it. This happened with both Oculus VR and Nest, two media darlings, which made out nicely writing a tsunami of positive press to multi-billion dollar exits. Slack, the instant messaging platform for enterprises, grew from nothing into a billion-dollar company in just two years, and it didn't run any large marketing campaigns. It didn't have an elaborate email strategy or spend millions on billboards and TV commercials. In fact, Slack didn't even have a chief marketing officer. The founders simply made sure to engage the press early on. And whenever they got a good write-up, they shared it with their most influential friends, who posted it to their followers, and so on. Whenever I look at a startup, I like to see early signs that the story will resonate with the media. Is there something special about this startup that will strike a chord with journalists? Is the startup able to ride, or better yet, encapsulate a trend? What will bloggers say when writing about the startup? How will this startup speak to a sizable segment of the population? If the answers to these questions align with the value the startup is offering its customers, there's a decent chance it will be able to break through with its message. But don't get fooled. The media can write about some pretty silly stuff, too. Not every trend will turn into a unicorn. I remember when the social app Yo! launched. All it did was allow users to send their friends the word Yo! That's it. It was such a stupid idea that it caught everyone's attention rocketed to the top of the App Store, and garnered an ungodly amount of coverage. Eager to cash in, some naive investors hopped on the bandwagon, investing $1.5 million into the startup. Sure enough, this turkey didn't fly. Media attention alone doesn't mean a startup will succeed. But if a startup has a solid team, product, and vision, the effect of media on its ability to grow fast can't be underestimated. 67. Skeletons in the Closet Most startups have skeletons in their closets, and it's the investor's job to open up every closet door before buying the house. One time I was in the middle of due diligence when I asked to see the agreement assigning the intellectual property to the startup. I was led to believe the IP belonged to the company, but it turned out this wasn't the case at all. The CEO had kept the core IP under his personal name, and he hadn't divulged this to anyone. In fact, he had misled us, which bordered on fraud. I lost all respect for this entrepreneur, refused to introduce him to investors, and severed our ties to the company. When an investor is performing due diligence on your startup, please don't hide anything. It's far better to be open and honest, even if you feel it may kill the deal. After all, your reputation is at stake. If you leave out important details that are relevant to the future potential of your company, that's the equivalent of lying to the investor. Everything must be transparent if you're going to build a long-term trust relationship. Eventually, all the details will emerge, so hiding important facts will only come back to haunt you. I can't stress this enough. Investors are about to become your partners in the business, and the last thing you want is partners who feel betrayed. Another thing to watch out for is the interviews. During the due diligence process, smart investors won't limit themselves to looking at your documents. They will ask to meet with your key team members individually and talk with them. Often, they will ask the same questions to each member of your management team and compare notes to make sure all the stories add up. This is how they uncover problems with your business. With this in mind, you need to prep your team and make sure everyone is on the same page. The last thing you want is a miscommunication or misunderstanding to set off alarm bells in the investor's head. To stave off competition for a hot deal, many investors will ask the entrepreneur to sign a non-binding term sheet before entering into due diligence. This way, they can lock in the deal while leaving the door open to walk away if they happen to find anything questionable.
This can place the startup in a weak position because as soon as the term sheet is signed, all the competing investors must be told. Momentum comes to a grinding halt and the pressure is off. The lead investor no longer has to move quickly. Now it's a waiting game. And if the lead backs out of the deal for whatever reason, it can cast a huge shadow on the company. This is why the whole due diligence stance needs to be carefully orchestrated from both the startups and investors' perspectives. My advice to startup founders is simple. Before signing any term sheet, you should disclose everything of substance. Don't leave anything in the closet for investors to find. The earlier you do this in the process, the better. It not only builds trust, it tends to have less of an impact. The same fact presented near the beginning of the process when the investor is still undecided doesn't have nearly as much impact as when the investor is on the verge of committing to the deal. That's when even small details can tip the balance. You should also keep a copy of every agreement your company has ever signed in a cloud folder like Dropbox or Google Drive. Be sure to include a copy of the cap table, a spreadsheet listing a company's equity capitalization, articles of incorporation, patents, trademarks, hiring agreements, and all other pertinent documents in this one folder. When investors are interested in moving forward, you can simply email them the link and password. It makes it so simple. I've seen a deal fall apart because the startup had its paperwork spread all over the place. Some of it was on old laptops, and other paperwork was missing entirely. It took weeks to get this information to the investors. By that time, several of the interested parties had moved on. Investors are notoriously fickle, and they had found other shiny objects to chase. Remember, VCs see so many deals that if one appears difficult, their attention naturally shifts to the next startup in line. I know some investors will sign a term sheet even before they're sure they want to invest in order to lock out the competition. Then they drag their feet because they're still undecided and often make some excuse to back out of the deal. This is why you should have a clause setting a timeline for due diligence. There needs to be a firm end date, and if the investor misses that date, there should be a penalty to pay. When I was trying to raise capital for my second startup, we ran up $40,000 in legal fees only to have the deal fall through when the investor changed the terms on us at the last minute. I wish I'd had a clause in our term sheet covering this. Keep in mind that most investors won't agree to any sort of penalty, That doesn't necessarily mean they have bad intentions. The top-tier VC firms often won't commit to binding term sheets or penalizations of any kind. It's just not something they do. In this case, you'll just have to make a decision. Do you walk away from the deal or not? It often comes down to trust. Can you count on the integrity of this investor? If you have doubts, maybe it's the wrong investor for you. If the answer is unclear, which it often is, then take your time. Don't rush into signing the term sheet. Do some of your own due diligence on the investor before moving forward. 68. What's the fun factor? I've saved the best part for last, the fun factor. What do I mean by this? I mean that in my experience, companies that seem like they are having the most fun are more often than not good investments. I love it when everyone on the team is enthusiastic, enjoys working together, and believes in what they are doing. When I hear this from the employees, I know the management team is doing something right. Even if they haven't figured out their product market fit yet, and even if they are struggling to close deals, teams that have fun together stick together. It's like winning sports teams. They form an intangible bond that won't show up on spreadsheets or P&Ls, profit and loss statements but is the magic formula that may help them overcome seemingly insurmountable obstacles. A study from two scientists at the University of California, Berkeley, found that sports teams whose players physically touch one another, whether hugs, slaps on the back, or high fives, have a higher probability of winning. When players show affection and bonding, it actually translates into higher scores. They've counted how many times players make friendly physical contact, and this correlates directly to the final outcome in the games they play. Touch predicts performance through fostering cooperation between teammates, says Dacker Keltner, a professor of social psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. You can communicate really important emotions like gratitude, compassion, 
love, and anger just through brief touches. In startups, it's the same way. That's why I pay special attention to the body language of each team member. Do these people really enjoy being around one another? Do they seem sincere? Or are they all just in it for the money? What are the team dynamics? Sometimes I like to take the team out for a hike or observe them in a group activity where I can see how they interact. Maybe it's ultimate frisbee, paintball, or whitewater rafting. Are they helpful and supportive of one another? How well do they communicate? Are they having fun together? Emotionally connected teams are great investments. It's no accident that many successful startup founders are good friends before they start their companies together. A lot of the time, they've been co-workers at previous jobs or college roommates. They understand one another's quirks and have each other's backs. This is essential because doing a startup is so hard, both emotionally and financially, that having the support of a group can be essential to keeping the startup afloat when times get tough. I remember when I was a boy and joined Little League Baseball, I was assigned to the worst team ever. Everyone on the team was just awful. The first two seasons, we nearly lost every game. It was like the movie The Bad News Bears, except that we were even less talented. I was among the worst on the team, which tells you just how naturally gifted at sports I am. I was so terrified of the ball hitting me that I would sit out in right field, praying no one would bat it my way. Even by our third season, not a single one of us had progressed to the upper leagues, which in itself was remarkable. Trust me, it wasn't the lack of trying. We all tried to advance. No one wants to be left behind in the junior leagues, but we all failed. That's how bad we were. So, we were stuck with exactly the same team as the previous two years. It was our final season. After this, we'd all be going to middle school and be too old for Little League. Coming back to our same bedraggled team and seeing everyone again was bittersweet. We knew it would be a repeat of the previous two years. Sure enough, we lost our first game of the season by a huge margin. Then we went on to lose our second and third games. Our coach, desperate to boost morale, promised to take everyone on the team to Disneyland if we simply qualified for the playoffs at the end of the year. This certainly seemed like a safe bet to him, but to us, it was more. It was his way of saying he cared. It was also a tangible goal. We had something to work toward. We didn't have to win the championship. We just had to qualify. Over the next couple of weeks, something magical happened. We bonded, not in the way we had before, but in a deeper, more emotional way. We trusted one another and began to work together toward our shared goal of going to Disneyland. That's when we won our first game. Not by much, but still, we won. That single win gave us confidence, and we went on to win our second game then our third. With each win, we became closer, like a single unit, instead of a bunch of misfits thrown together. Our mediocre players suddenly weren't quite so bad. I even became a steady hitter. I stopped striking out and made consistent singles and doubles. Just as we were gaining momentum, the unexpected happened. Our coach ditched us. He packed up and moved across the country to work at a Hershey's chocolate factory, leaving us without any replacement. You would think this would have slowed us down, but it didn't. It wasn't about our coach any longer. It wasn't even about Disneyland. It was about one another. We didn't need a coach. We were a team now, and we were winning together. A teammate's mother filled in as our temporary coach, and we charged ahead. We kept on winning and winning and winning, right up until the playoffs. We not only qualified for the playoffs, we made it to the finals. In the end, it was us versus our arch rival, the same team that had slaughtered us at the beginning of the season. Our coach still hadn't returned, so we didn't expect any trip to Disneyland, but we were determined to win the championship. We couldn't let one another down. And guess what? We crushed them. I can't express how good it felt for all of us to end Little League as winners, not losers. This type of energy is what I look for in startups. If they've come together and love what they're doing, there's almost no barrier too big. I look for startups that operate like a winning team. I want to see that they are in it for one another and will do whatever it takes. These teams genuinely enjoy working together, and that sense of excitement and camaraderie rubs off on everyone they do business with. 
These are the companies I want to be a part of. I want to be on their team because I know in the end, it's going to be an amazing experience. They may not win this time around, but if they keep at it, they can make it to the playoffs. The company culture tends to overflow into the products and customer service. When people love what they're doing and care about one another, their products and customer interactions can't help but reflect that. Think of how much fun Google is with its crazy logo, fabulous offices, silly slides, and open atmosphere. Whenever I run into Googlers in Silicon Valley, they rave about how much they love their jobs. The ride-sharing startup Lyft also gives off the same vibe. The founders began by putting giant pink mustaches on all their cars, and they've continued to exude a sense of fun and caring that Uber lacks. Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, has also been obsessed with community and relationship building. In the early days, he made a point of visiting all his hosts and bonding with them. He even went so far as to rent out the couch in his home for $50 a night. Boxed is another one of these startups. It's the e-commerce version of Costco or Sam's Club. But if you compare the websites, the fun factor extends beyond the playful logo and user interface. Che Wong, the millennial CEO, wants all his employees to love the company, and he's putting his money where his mouth is. He pledged to pay the college tuition fees for his employees' kids out of his personal equity. That's money from his own pocket, not the company. We were really poor growing up, says Wong. It was tough times in Ohio when we lived there. My dad was between unemployed and just selling random knickknacks at a flea market. My mom was a cashier at a Chinese food restaurant. Education has been transformative in his family's life and his own success. That's why he wants to give the same opportunity to everyone in his company. Huang hasn't stopped there. Boxed has implemented a policy of reimbursing employees up to $20,000 for life-changing events, like weddings. It's not the cheapest program, admits Huang, but then we don't look like a typical startup. In their offices, there are no ping-pong tables, beer kegs, or free lunches. We're frugal, and we use our money to fund what we think are really impactful and meaningful things. This approach has allowed him to build loyalty, engender trust, and retain employees. So far, the result is that after four years in business and a payroll exceeding 200, fewer than 10 full-time employees have voluntarily left the company. Southwest Airlines is famous for its highly motivated, fun-loving employees. That's why their customer service has been so much better than any of the other airlines. People there genuinely like their jobs. They are encouraged to speak out and be themselves. This all comes out of the company culture. Southwest truly values its employees, and everyone working at the company knows this. They care about their jobs because they know the company cares about them. This is reflected in every aspect of Southwest, from its management style and profit-sharing plan to the work environment, making it one of the most profitable airlines in the world for more than 40 years. L.L. Bean, the outdoor outfitter, also builds its loyalty by supporting and nurturing its employees. It is consistently ranked in Fortune 100's best companies to work for. When you walk into its stores, you can feel the positive energy. The fun factor is genuine. It's present in everything the company does, from its award-winning customer service to its famously high-quality products. The result has been a brand that customers and employees adore and a turnover rate of just 3%, which is rare in the retail industry. What's even more surprising is that L.L. Bean is more than 100 years old. So this rule doesn't just apply to startups. Whatever the business, the fun factor can't be ignored. And that's why unicorn hunters place a premium on this elusive quality. Section 5. Scaling Up. Building a Billion-Dollar Business. Now that we've covered launching a startup, fundraising, and venture capital, let's tackle what it takes to supercharge your growth. We'll explore how to find the best talent, bring in customers, and accelerate your business. We'll also answer questions like, how do you design a more creative workspace? Which marketing and customer acquisition strategies work best? What does it mean to have an exit strategy? And why is it important for startups to have an unfair advantage? By the time we're done, you'll understand the nuts and bolts of scaling your company.
69. The Art of Hiring After convincing investors to fill up your bank account with cash, the first thing you need to think about is hiring. It sounds exciting, but it can become a real chore. You get buried in resumes, there are endless interviews, and finding the right person for even one position can be a huge time sink. The worst part is that it never ends. As you grow, the problem only becomes more acute. To lessen the strain, you need to plan ahead, and that means taking the time to establish a hiring plan from the get-go. A hiring plan outlines all the positions you need to fill in the coming six months, the job requirements, the compensation you will pay, and your recruitment strategy. You should make sure to get board approval on the compensation packages right up front which is much easier than on a piecemeal basis every time you need to hire a new employee. After this, the hard work begins. I like to say that the most important thing a CEO can do is to bring on board the right people. If you do this well, they will do the rest. Google founder Larry Page takes hiring so seriously that he insisted on signing off on every new hire. By 2015, he had vetted more than 30,000 employees. The most common feedback from Larry is that a candidate might not meet our hiring bar or that the creativity shown in a portfolio might not be up to snuff, wrote Laszlo Bach, former head of human resources at Google, in his book, Work Rules. More important than the feedback itself is the message from Larry to the company that hiring is taken seriously at the highest levels and that we have a duty to continue doing a good job. This is because Page understands that when building a world-class company, the most important thing is the people you choose. Even if you have millions in the bank and your investors are pressuring you to scale up fast to meet demand, take a page out of Google's playbook. Don't rush hiring. Don't cut corners. It's far better to take your time and thoroughly vet every candidate. A good rule of thumb is to interview at least 10 qualified candidates before filling any position. You cannot get a feel for the talent available if you interview too few people. After 10 people, it's usually diminishing returns. That said, if you don't find the right person after 10 interviews, hold off and interview more. Interviews are better done as a team sport. Don't leave it up to one person. The problem with relying on a single individual is that this person may choose to hire his friends over more qualified candidates. It's a natural inclination because he has a relationship with them, but it's counter to building a true meritocracy. Also, when scaling up, founders and managers often feel intense pressure to fill vacant positions. This can lead to subpar hires and hurts the company in the long run. That's why companies like Google use independent hiring committees to make the final decisions. When setting up a hiring committee, it's good to create a list of criteria you expect from the employee. What skills are required for the job? What qualities do you prize most? Honesty, attention to detail, ability to communicate clearly, past accomplishments? Here are the top five criteria I use. One, ability to learn. The candidate must be able to quickly pick up new things and learn on the fly. Two, leadership. Has this person been in a leadership position? What in the candidate's past demonstrates an ability to take charge? Three, humility. Is this person humble enough to take other people's ideas into account? Does the candidate understand how to listen and collaborate? Four, ownership. Does this person take responsibility and follow through? Five, expertise. Does the candidate have the skills required to perform the job? This is especially important for highly technical positions. It's best if the hiring committee members interview the candidates independently and write down their evaluations of each person, assigning a score from 1 to 10 to each of the criteria on the list. The scores can then be summed up in a final number. If you want to weight certain criteria more than others, you can tweak the formula. You'll find that, in the end, the sum of the scores proves a far more accurate indicator of the candidate's suitability for the job than going on gut feelings, as most people do with interviewing. If you want to know more about this method, read the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. The book explains how our brains have evolved to make snap decisions about people, and these decisions are based on unconscious biases. We evolved this way over thousands of years. 
when our ancient ancestors were walking down a trail and came across someone from another tribe, they'd have to decide if the stranger was a friend or foe within a matter of seconds. One mistake and wham, their DNA might not make it to the next generation. For this reason, we're always scanning the faces of strangers to determine if we can trust them or not. The process is almost instantaneous, meaning we don't logically think it through. This is good for survival in a harsh world, but not so good for judging how competent people are at their jobs. A study at the University of Toledo confirms this. They found that judgments made in the first 10 seconds of an interview can predict the final outcome. This is called a confirmation bias. It's the tendency to search for, interpret, and prioritize information in a way that confirms one's beliefs or hypotheses. In other words, if our gut feeling says the candidate who walked in the door is right for the job, then for the rest of the interview, we subconsciously look for evidence that reinforces this hunch. The result is that we tend to pick people with whom we feel comfortable. If they are from our social group, that's an instant plus. Good-looking people get more job offers and higher pay than ugly ones. Extroverts have an advantage over introverts. Men get chosen over women. White people are given preference over people of color, even when the person doing the hiring is a person of color. This is because these biases are part of our society and get propagated unconsciously. We don't even realize we're doing it. This means the best, most qualified candidates often get passed over. To prevent this from happening, we need to consciously analyze the data and disregard our first impressions. That's why a systematized process is necessary. It's important to prepare predetermined, unbiased questions and a way to analyze and rank the responses. It also helps to take detailed notes during the interview of all relevant factors and then have someone who has never met the candidate review those notes and form an independent judgment based on the established criteria. After the interview, when checking references, you cannot rely on the people the job candidate suggests. They will almost always be positive. You need to find references not on the list, and that requires some detective work. Every time you check a reference, you should ask to be connected with other people who worked with the candidate in the same company, but were left off the list. Don't stop there. You should also get on LinkedIn and search for people who can tell you more about the candidate's past. While you're at it, also check the candidate's social media postings. The goal isn't to see if the candidate went wild one night at a party or what taste in music this person has. It's to uncover serious problems and prejudices that would affect job performance. If this sounds like it will take up a lot of your time, you're right. But as I said, there's nothing more important you can be doing. Hiring the right people lays the foundation upon which your company is built. A series of bad hires, especially at the managerial level, can undermine and topple the best organization, while good hires accelerate growth. Seventy, identifying talent. I've gotten better at interviewing employees over the years. When I started out, I was terrible. I didn't know which questions to ask or how to evaluate people. I now have specific criteria that I look for in new hires. As a general rule, I prefer to hire for potential over expertise. Expertise is good and often necessary, but potential is even more critical. This is because most startup jobs are in constant flux, especially at the early stages when the business is still being flushed out. What someone needs to know today may be irrelevant six months later. Everyone has to adapt quickly and constantly be learning. For example, I may hire an engineer who is an expert in Microsoft SQL Server, only to discover that I need someone who knows MongoDB next month. Can this engineer adapt and learn, or am I out of luck? The same is true with most knowledge professions. There's always something new coming along. Technology never stands still. This means the people in a modern organization need to be constantly retraining themselves. With this in mind, here are the qualities I look for. Self-improvers. The best employees are never satisfied with what they know. No matter how talented they are, they are determined to become better. They are constantly seeking out new courses, coaches, mentors, books, and other ways of improving themselves. Natural curiosity. 
People who innovate on the job tend to be curious about everything. They can't help but ask questions and seek out the answers. This behavior correlates directly to their ability to solve creative problems. Love of learning. People who value learning are always sucking up knowledge and new ideas. They don't see learning as a chore, but as one of the great joys in life. Driven to succeed. I like to hire people who are internally motivated to rise up the ladder. They're always striving to get ahead and taking on new challenges. Feeling of responsibility. The best employees own their jobs. They feel accountable for their actions and will go to extraordinary lengths to fulfill their commitments. Enjoy their work. You can't be the best at something if you don't like doing it. People who truly love what they do tend to go further. They are the engineers who download the latest software development kits for fun on the weekends. They are the marketing managers who can't wait to try out new analytics software or launch an experimental campaign just to see if it works. They enjoy their job so much that work and play become one and the same. Doers. Most important, I like employees who are self-starters. They don't sit around waiting to be told what to do. They figure out on their own what needs to get done, and they take action. When I interview candidates, I go deep into their past. I ask all sorts of questions. I want to know what they actually did on their previous jobs. I don't care if they were a vice president or junior project manager. It's what they've done and how they did it that matters. Did they take ownership of their job? Did they come up with a project on their own and drive it to completion? Were they able to get others on board? How did they convince their coworkers, bosses, and outsiders it was worth pursuing? By delving into their past, I want to see evidence that they actually accomplished something out of the ordinary of their own volition. Those are the people who pay off in the long run. Seventy-one. Recruitment Strategies Let me just say that I'm not a big fan of outsourced recruiting. I don't think you can build a great company by relying on paid recruiters, especially those earning a commission. The recruiter's goals simply aren't aligned with yours. If they are being paid per hire, they are incentivized to bring you a candidate that meets your qualifications as quickly as possible. The longer it takes, the more it costs them. As a result, they often gloss over things that might prevent this candidate from getting the job. Some even coach the candidate on what to say. I strongly recommend you build your own in-house team that has the company's long-term interests in mind and understands your goals and culture. One of the most effective ways to recruit great people is to tap into your existing employees and their social networks. Many companies offer bonuses to employees who recommend candidates who get hired. However, the problem with giving bonuses is that it sends the wrong message. Employees wind up recommending candidates just to get some extra money, not because they truly believe they're the best fit. Instead, you want every employee to help identify potential candidates because they have a vested interest in making the company a great place to work. For this to be effective, start by emphasizing the importance of hiring the right people and how it's everyone's job to recruit new talent. It's important to take the time to explain the company's hiring needs and criteria. Update employees regularly on the hiring status. Google found that a simple monthly reminder on what jobs need to be filled helps boost participation significantly. You should also throw a party whenever someone is brought on board, where you thank those who contributed the most time toward finding the new hire and highlight exactly what employees did during the recruitment process. This is how you can build a lasting recruitment engine. The other part of recruiting that many people overlook is taking the time to understand what the candidate wants from the job. It's not enough to put the person through the process. You need to find out what the candidate values most. What does he expect from your company? What are his long-term goals? What type of work environment does he prefer? There's no point in hiring someone if it's not a good fit. He will just wind up leaving and you'll have to start over again. Once you determine the candidate is right for the job, you need to make sure he understands why your company is the best choice. Remember, any excellent candidate will be in demand. You must give this person a good reason to join your company over the competitors. Often, this goes beyond compensation. It comes down to the candidate's long-term career goals, 
ideal work environment, social values, and personal needs. You need to address all of these. But you can't do that if you don't understand who the candidate really is and what this person cares about most. When the candidate visits your offices, take the time to show her around. Get to know her in a casual setting. Share your vision for the company. Help her understand not only what you're doing, but why it matters. Allow time for the candidate to explore the office and feel comfortable. Introduce her to your employees and give them a chance to chat. You'd be surprised at how few companies do this. For most companies, it's all about the interview. Remember, hiring is a two-way street. You are not just picking who you want. They have to pick you, too. It's also wise to have candidates visit the office more than once before hiring them. Each time, make the visit more personal and relaxed. Take them out to lunch. Let them hang out in the open area and mingle with your team. Invite them to a company outing. Do whatever it takes to integrate them into the team, even before they are hired. Then, when it comes time to negotiate compensation, they aren't just thinking about who will pay them the most, but what it means to work for your company over others. In the end, don't let money become the determining factor. Remember, a great employee is worth 10 mediocre ones. If this person is truly the right fit for your company, you should be paying above average, not pinching pennies. It will not only seal the deal, but it will help retain the person over the long run. What you want are the best employees, not the least expensive, and it's worth investing in the best. 72. Firing Employees the Right Way You can't grow a business without making mistakes. We all trip up sometimes. No matter how careful you are, you will hire lemons. The key is acting quickly and decisively. By the time most managers admit to themselves that they hired the wrong person, it's six months too late. Let's face it, no one wants to fire someone. It's a painful process. It's hard on the manager and even harder on the employee. But looking the other way only creates problems. You may think your team will react negatively to a firing, but by the time you recognize there's a problem, you can bet that most of your team feels the same way. Often, the worst thing you can do is try to keep someone in a position that he or she is not suited for. It gums up the whole system. Other team members can't do their jobs with someone incompetent or disruptive in the mix. Firing the person isn't a bad thing. It's often the only solution, and you'll find that it makes your team stronger, not weaker, when you do it right. I'm not saying you should just fire someone for the first screw-up. That's not good management. You need to find out why the problem happened and determine if the person is capable of learning from the mistake. A manager's job is to analyze and understand everyone on the team and how they can best work together. Screw-ups are seldom the fault of a single individual. They usually stem from a flaw in the process, miscommunication, or multiple people doing things the wrong way. To address problems in employee performance, you need to view your company as a continually evolving system. With each iteration, new problems become apparent, and each member of your organization should participate in debugging the system. You can always do things better, and for your system to improve, the employees need to step up and address the issues themselves. Your goal should be to get everyone to come up with solutions. Casting blame does not help. It just makes people defensive. Instead, focus on the process, not the people involved. If it's a process problem, you can fix it. However, if it becomes apparent that a particular employee isn't capable of doing the job, you have a choice. Either change the nature of the job or let the person go. Once you decide to let someone go, do not procrastinate. Take immediate action. Here's the 12-step plan. 1. Document everything the employee did wrong. As part of good management practices, you should have been doing this all along. Each time you gave this employee feedback on his performance, you should have written it down and communicated it to him. Don't just fire someone because you don't like him. You should have evidence that this person could not perform the work required. Otherwise, you are opening yourself up to a lawsuit. Two, once all of your paperwork is in order, you need to consider looking for a replacement. You may even bring the replacement in early and initiate training. This is often necessary in highly technical positions for which there is no redundancy. 
Three, after the knowledge transfer is complete, make an exit plan for the employee being fired. You should know exactly what you are going to do and how it is going to unfold. Don't wing it. Don't leave anything up to chance. Four, are you going to offer a severance package? If so, you should tie that to a legally binding release form to be signed upon termination. Five, schedule a time early in the week to carry out the termination. Do not do it just before the weekend. You need time to communicate to the remaining employees why this is happening and what it means to them. If they don't understand, they may fear they are going to be next in line and morale may drop. Six, when conducting the termination, you should be direct and truthful. Don't try to make the terminated employee feel good. That's not helpful, and it will just confuse him.